Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Bright Vibe Podcast. At Bright Vibe, we believe everyone deserves to be happy. But in today's world, everywhere you turn, there is division and negativity. At Bright Vibe, we have created a global movement to bring 8 million people together who are inspired to live bright, live bold, and share bright vibes. Alone, it can be hard to change, but together we can change the world. Welcome to the Bright Vibe Podcast. All right, Bruce Feiler, welcome to the Bright Vibe Podcast. I am so excited to have you on today. I want to say, uh, in the spirit of bright, as my mother used to say, you look very bright-eyed and bushy-tailed today. <laughs> Even though you've had your own, uh, you know, I yeah. it's probably not a life quake, but you've had your own medical yes. journey in, in recent days. So good for you for bouncing back so quickly. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yes. I was sharing pre-show. I had my appendix out, I guess, 10 days ago, something like this. And it was actually uh, one of the highlight experiences I've had um, in a while. It was a very interesting to watch me respond to watch the mind, but watch the body respond. And where I went was not where I thought I would go. It was, it was actually, I'm super thankful that it happened. I'll put it that way. I'm just super thankful and blessed. It was the most extreme pain I've ever felt, you know, spent hours on the bathroom floor, ambulances, all kinds of meds. And then finally they cut me open and, or not cut, they did the laparoscopic and took it out. But it was a most interesting experience. I, I was just actually felt very blessed and thankful to have the experience once it was all over, just because I got to see how I would have responded maybe years ago and how I respond now. And this is kind of dovetails into a lot of what you write about, which life yes. is in the transitions, right? These transitionary times where we find out kind of more about ourselves. So you're you're a profound author. You you've got you know seven New York Times bestsellers, which is amazing to me because I know that's no easy feat in and of itself. I know several authors and have interviewed several authors, and I and I've never interviewed any author who's had seven New York Times bestsellers. You know, uh, life is in the transitions, the secret of happy families, uh, council of dads. You've got a lot of TED talks. I, I also you know through my research really thought this was interesting. Walking the Bible, which is very I'm very curious about as well. So you've got lots of fun fun fodder for today's conversation. You've got a new book out. The Search, Finding Meaningful yeah. Work in a Post-Career work. World. And and you read a newsletter, The Nonlinear Life. So, and you were a cancer survivor, correct? Let's meet the moment that we're in. Let's yeah, talk yeah. about what it means on day one to be lying in pain in a fetal <laughs> position in any place. <laughs> yes. And 10 days later to say it's one of the most profound and meaningful uh -huh. experiences of my life. Because that, in fact, is the space or a space that I occupy right now. And so let me, uh -huh. I'll set the stage by trying to tie all of these things together, together. Okay. Um, until we get to, to the point of you on the floor and then you, <laughs> uh, with you the color, color in your cheeks and the smile yes. on your face and the twinkle in your eye. So I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, I left there and uh, went to Yale in the 80s and went from there to Japan and started 
writing letters home. I'm older than you are, but on crinkly airmail paper, like <laughs> you're not going to believe what happened to me today. And when I got back to Georgia six months later, everyone said, I loved your letters. And I was like, great. Have we met? And it turned out that my grandmother had Xeroxed them and passed them around and they went viral in a sort of old fashioned sense old of the word. Day. Yeah. And I thought, well, if this is interesting to me and all these people, like I should write a book about this. And oh, it doesn't awesome. happen this way. But I saw my first book 35 years ago and I've never held a job since. So wow. um, that's amazing. And in the context of the conversation we're about to have, I think of my life as sort of the classic linear upward trajectory. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I wrote a series of books in my 20s. I wrote a book about Japan. I wrote a book about Oxford and Cambridge. I spent a year as a circus clown. I then, as you said, <laughs> right, right. went went back and forth to the Middle East, writing books and making television about religion and spirituality and, mm -hmm. and how these are changing and how we find meaning in our lives, perhaps different from how we grew up and as our, our needs change over time. And so this is that classic linear life. Like I figured out what I wanted to do early. I did it for no money. I had some success. I got married. I had children like I was on top of the world, right? In entrepreneurial mm -hmm. terms, I was on the, the <laughs> up at the handle right. of the hockey stick, right? Right, yep. And then my life blew up in my 40s. First, uh, as you said, I got cancer at 43. As a parent of three-year-old identical twin daughters, I had a nine-inch osteosarcoma in my left femur. So suddenly I was the walking guy who couldn't walk again. Then I had some financial troubles in the last recession. And then my dad, who had Parkinson's, got very depressed and tried to take his own life six times in 12 weeks. Oh, wow. So this was a crisis, you know, by almost any metric. And here I am a storyteller, right? Mm, you right. know, some of those bestsellers had preceded one. this date, right? And, and right. particularly, and I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, the greatest stories ever told and how they related to our lives today, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly I couldn't tell my own life story. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, Matt, that I, when I started telling it, tentatively to people, everyone had a story about how their life got upended in some way. And the language that they used was that I was somehow like off schedule or off track or off kilter, like the life I expected to be living is not the life that I am living. And I called my wife, it was actually after a college reunion. And I said, no one knows how to tell their life story anymore. And let me do something to help. And so what I've done, it's now been um, almost eight years since I started this project is I have spent this time crisscrossing the country, collecting what has become almost 500 life stories of Americans of all ages, all walks of life. I'm talking about people who lost homes, who lost limbs, who changed careers, who changed religions, who got sober, got out of bad marriages. And I do these long, intensive kind of life story interviews with them. And then I have this team of people and we code them looking for patterns and sort of the core question is like, how do we make meaning? How do we readjust our lives? Like, how do we add a new chapter to mm -hmm. our life story when it's suddenly kind of thrown off track? And that's the essence of what I'm doing. I've now done two books in this space. The first is called Life is in the Transitions, which is how we navigate these events that I call life quakes when our lives are upended. And then the search is about what happens when we have work quakes, right? When something happens mm -hmm. yep. in our work lives that we want to make a change, we want more meaning, like how do we navigate that? Like we've been sort of brainwashed over you know, a century that we have to have a career and has to be linear and has to grow mm -hmm. and the resume has to look a certain way. But that doesn't reflect, in fact, our lives where we have lots of twists and turns. 
And so my life in a lot of ways is if you're lying in a fetal position on the floor of your bathroom, <laughs> under your bed, you know, in a right. war zone, in a hospital room, whatever right. it is, how do you get from there to exactly what I'm seeing before me on this video that people are not able to see as you and I talk, a smile on your face saying, I've learned from it and I'm ready now to lean into my life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For me, there was one, I thought I had food poisoning. So there was this concept of, oh, I have food poisoning. Just tough it out. I'll get over it. In that between basically, I don't know, about 9 p.m. and 2 a.m. when I called the ambulance, there was this conversation that was happening with God where I, it was the culmination of the low point, which would have happened three or four years ago when I was thinking of taking my own life because of everything we've just talked about, financial upheaval. I mean, COVID just was a wrecking ball on my life. And I got to the point where it was totally meaningless, uh, nothing but pain, nothing but suffering. It was just horrible, horrible, horrible. You know, thank God for my kids and my wife that kept me grounded enough to stay here. But, but this was like the other, not the completion of that, but the test of the faith that was built through those, that recover, I'll call it recovery process of being at this low point where I'm, you know, literally, you know, thinking about carrying a bullet in my pocket to, okay, this is the most excruciating pain I've ever experienced in my life. I mean, literally I'm bent over. I can't hardly breathe. I've got nothing left in my system on the floor. And am I going to turn towards God or am I going to turn away from God? And so it became a very spiritual experience for me of not turning away from. And there was literally the thought of, as I'm wrenching out my guts and the thought became, if this is what needs to happen to me physically to heal me, to set me free from the molds or the paradigm or the, the constructs that I have, then do whatever you have to do to me to get me healed. Just heal me. I don't care what physically has to happen to me. Just heal me, Lord. Right. I don't think I've even shared that with my wife. And that was just the, what was coming through me. And that was the only thing I could focus on because I was in so much pain. I mean, it was a 10 out of What 10. was your role before I comment on this? And yeah. thank you for sharing. I appreciate the vulnerability and I'm honored by it. So in this construct that you've just shared, mm -hmm. how much of this is God's responsibility and how much of it's your responsibility? Um, responsibility as far as? The healing process. Where does the what, agency lie? I, I guess, and I, and I don't know that I have a, a suit. I have not thought of it that way. I guess for me, the healing, I would say the healing process, which is over the last three or four years, is 100% God's grace and or 99.99%. And the 0.01% is me just taking the next step forward. So I would say that the, the healing is all God's grace. And I have just been the recipient of that grace, even when it didn't feel good. And, and this experience, Physically, it doesn't feel good, but there was something in me that knew that this was grace at work. I will also say that because I thought it was food poisoning, I thought it was something I could tough through to the point of literally feeling like I was going to pass out to the point of saying, because I hate going to the I mean, when I woke my wife up and said, hey, it was 2 a.m. I said, hey, I need to go to the hospital. She knew that something was seriously wrong because there's no way I would normally do that. Yeah. So, for, so for me, that final act that night was an act of surrender. Right? Mm -hmm. Because I went from thinking, I'm going to figure this out, I'm going to be okay, to I'm not okay, and now it's time to let life, God, people to take care of me because I can't. I I'm to the point where I have to surrender.
So there's about three conversations that we could now have. Um, <laughs> and this in, in was response. supposed to be about you, Bruce. This wasn't it's supposed okay. to be the Matt Lilly story. Uh, we're, but we're, we're, you're you're going to learn a little bit about me in the next few minutes based <laughs> on how I respond to this. Let me tell you the ways I don't want to go with this story, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But I could in a different life or a future conversation, <laughs> right? One is the the myth of toughing it through, right? Yes, Which is yes. a sort of a masculine yep, myth totally. that that we are engendered from a very young age, that we right. have to be the fix-it and the problem yep. solvers, and that we have to do that. If yep. you're interested in that, go read Council of Dads, which is my story of when I was sick, reaching out to six friends of mine uh-huh. and asking them to be in a Council of Dads to be present oh, for my daughters. Cool. Yeah. In the event that I died, this went on right. to be a TED Talk. It went on to be a primetime series on NBC. You can, I leave a long Google trail of talking about modern masculinity. And, and right. that's a conversation that we could have that I, that, that let's right. leave off stage. Okay. Fair enough. Then there's a sort of the part of me that wrote five books about the Bible that could talk about grace and agency and where, you know, where do we draw the line between what we want, you know, God or a divinity or Mm -hmm. spirituality or the universe or whatever language you like to do to do for you what we should do ourselves. That's another interesting conversation. (laughs) But let's focus on a different aspect of it, which is the meaning making through the pain. Okay. Yep. So let me go back to the big thing, say that I've learned in the work I've been doing now with what I call the Life Story Project, right? So the number one thing I learned is that the linear life is dead, right? The idea that mm-hmm. we're going to follow ideas, a life pattern where the only changes in our lives are going to happen, the birthdays that end in zero. The idea of the midlife crisis when it was invented in the 1970s was everyone does the same thing in their 20s. Everyone does the same thing in their 30s. And then everybody has a quote unquote midlife crisis between 39 and 44 and a half. That's literally what the research said. <laughs> um, this is bunk. And by the way, it's, an, it's, it's a historical anomaly. Like in the ancient world, they thought life was a cycle because agriculture was a cycle. It was actually mm-hmm. the Hebrew Bible that introduces the idea of linear time, mm-hmm. right? The idea of a family from Adam and Eve, right? Down through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. And, and if you're a, a, a Christian, then through, through Jesus in the New Testament, right? So this is mm-hmm. a linear construct so that by the Middle Ages, they think life is a staircase up to Middle Age and then down. Mm-hmm. That's not how we grew up. We grew up with that life was a descent to Middle Age and then a staircase <laughs> up. But even this idea is wrong. Okay, so the linear life is dead. It's been replaced by what I call the nonlinear life, which involves many more twists and turns, unexpected events, setbacks, leaps forward, whatever you want to call them. Okay, and my data show that we go through three dozen what I call disruptors in the course of a life. Mm -hmm. It could be as small as a fender bender or twisting your ankle or as big as having your house burned down or... Mm -hmm. Uh, losing a loved one. And most of these we get through relatively easily, as you've just seen with your uh, appendicitis. Mm-hmm. But one in 10 of them beca- is a big enough event that it becomes what I call a life quake. And right. we have three to five of these events in our lives. And the signature piece of data, and at least the part of this that has to do with life, we can get to the work part later, is that their average length is five years. Wow. So there's this long process. Wow. That's surprising. Yes, exactly. It's fascinating. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, why? Because the way to think about it is the life quake puts you on your heels. Yep. I'm sick. Woe is me. I want to take my life. I'm going bankrupt. Okay. I've yep. had a divorce. I've been drinking too much and I've left wreckage in my life, whatever right. it might be. So we feel mm-hmm. passive, reactive, 
overwhelmed, okay? And people tend to do one of two things, okay? They either make a 212 item to-do list and say, I'm going to get through in the weekend. I'm going to be the best ever. And I'm going to get through <laughs> it. And I'm going to be, everyone's going to know that I was the greatest person at responding to this event in my life. Okay. Right. And the other half of people lie in a fetal position, if perhaps on the bathroom floor, under their covers with a cat and say, what was me? No one's ever been through this. And my life right. is worse than everybody. Right. Neither of these is true. In fact, when you look at enough of these events, there are certain patterns that become clear. And so this leads to the sort of core frame is that the life quake is the event, right? It's the appendicitis. It's the depression. It's Mm -hmm. the losing the job. It's Mm -hmm. the pandemic. And the life quake puts you on your heels and the life transition is what puts you on your toes. It's Mm -hmm. the human reaction. It's the human exercise. And even if it's only 0.01% or whatever you said in this metric, right? God can help you realize that the life quake needs a human response, but the transition is fundamentally a personal event. And right. that's the third of the big lessons, which is that transitions are a skill that we can and we must master. And that's where my, the heart of my work is. And so when you look at enough of these events, they have certain phases, okay? So the first mm-hmm. phase of a life transition is what I call the long goodbye, where you have to accept the emotions that right. you're in this event and you use rituals and things to market and to say to yourself, I need help. I'm going through a difficult time. I'm out of control, I'm depressed, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, uh, suicidal or whatever it might be. That's the long goodbye. Mm -hmm. Then you enter this phase, which I call the messy middle, right? Where you shed certain habits, experiment with new ones, reach out to support, and you begin to craft this new self, Mm -hmm. which is an ugly process. It's two steps forward, four (laughs) steps back, steps forward, stable for two years when you think you're done, and then realizing there's still more leaps forward. Right. And then the last phase is the new beginning where you sort of update your life story, you add a new chapter to it, and you then unveil your new self. And so here's the thing, the kind of the 212 item to-do listers, they kind of thrive in the messy middle. Okay, I'm in a situation, I got a, you know, I talked to a guy, he, he was a consultant, he moved his family from Chicago to Vermont <laughs> to work at a luxury glass company, and three days later was, was 9-11. No one was buying luxury glass. <laughs> and he loses his job. He's just relocated his family. And he's like, I'm a consultant. I'm going to call 22 people. I'm going to make a plan. And he moved to Africa, right? By the way, to start a nonprofit, he adopted a kid, changed his family's life, et cetera. So some people that are the 212 item to-do listers Mm -hmm. are good at the messy middle, but they're bad at the long goodbye because they don't want to confront the emotions. Right. You know, I've looked hundreds of people in the eye and I've said them as I'm looking you in the eye through Mm -hmm. this computer right now and saying, you know, what's the biggest emotion? I'm going to ask you, back Mm -hmm. when you were in your in the state that you described of thinking that your life was over, mm-hmm. what was the biggest emotion you were struggling with at that time? I think, well, I don't know if it's emotion, but I'm, I'm a guy, so I only have two, right? Anger and happiness. But I, it was an overwhelming sense of failure and letting everyone down. I mean, just I just felt completely like a failure, like I let everybody in my life down. There wasn't anybody that I was there that I felt like I was serving. So I would categorize that at the third most popular mm-hmm. answer. The number one most popular answer when you ask people that question is fear. Okay? Mm-hmm. How am I going to get through this? I don't, you know, how am I going to pay my bills, right? Yeah, how well, am I going to get too. up? That was yeah, present how, too, yeah. How am I going to get up every day and deal with my young children? Yep. I just lost my yep. spouse, whatever. So number one is fear. Mm-hmm. Number two is sadness. 
I'm sad. Like I liked having this job, right? Or I, I loved living with this loved one. And now that now that they're no longer living with me because we're divorced. So number two is sadness. Number three, and it's interesting you bring up the, the gender issue. Number three is shame. And that's yep. what I heard. That's what I yep. heard you say. Yep. And what's I interesting agree. is I would have thought, and I did, I write in Life is in the Transitions, that I would have thought shame that men would admit it fewer and it's equal. There's no gender there's no gender breakdown mm-hmm. in what people... So the shame is, I'm ashamed yeah. of my behavior. I shamed what I yep. did when I drunk too much. I'm ashamed I have to ask for help. If right. I'm at the supermarket and someone asks me, you know, a simple question, how are the kids? If I have a child with an anxiety disorder or an, or an alcohol, you know, abuse disorder, like I'm ashamed, a very right. simple question. Yeah. And so the point is, these are emotional and you can make a to-do list and you can go right to the messy middle. But if you don't confront the emotion, if you don't accept that this is a difficult thing and do something with that emotion, your transition will not be successful. This is one of the reasons that there takes so long. And for a hundred years, and from since the guy, this German anthropologist invented the idea of transitions a hundred years ago, Arnold Van Gennep, everybody has said that you go through the various stages in, in order and you don't. Just like mm-hmm. life is nonlinear, you know, a life transition is nonlinear. So the essence of it is understand, I mean, the, the response to my work in general and this is a technical scientific term, I apologize for using it, but if people he- read or hear or watch my TED Talks where they say, you are describing what I'm feeling. Right. <laughs> and putting right. words to something, I didn't know there were, like my right. wife likes to say of me that I have hard knowledge about soft things. The essence of it is you're not alone. I mean, I always say this, the number one, three words to say to anybody who's going through a difficult time is you're not alone. Right. You're not alone. There's knowledge out there. There's wisdom out there. You can get through it with other people. But you have to think about these things as events that you go through multiple times in your life. And I would venture to say the stories you've been telling me illustrate that. Like the hardest question that I get about life transitions is, can I make them go faster? Right. <laughs> and I think it's hard because I think the answer is no. I think that they're just going to take a certain amount of time to work. But the flip side of that is you can do them better. Right. And I would suggest to you, as someone who just does this all day, every day, mm-hmm. That the fact that you just went in 10 days with, admittedly, it's probably a disruptor and not a life quake, disappendicitis, but the fact that you were able to flip the script to what can I learn and how can I make meaning in my life from this event builds off of the skills of what you went through X number of years ago when you went through the bigger one. That's sort of my message to people. Like if you or someone you know is in a life quake and absolutely two thirds of our country right now is in a work quake where they're reimagining what they're doing. If you come on this journey with me, you're going to meet people who were where you are and and a lot of them are a hell of a lot worse than you. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get tools to help you get through them more effectively. That's amazing. That's truly amazing. You know, I, I studied Joseph Campbell's work and, you know, the hero's journey. There's a lot of different phases of that. I'm sure you're familiar with that. But, and I thought about that at the time, but it didn't give me necessarily any tools. It didn't soothe my soul, right? Even though I knew yeah. I was at the dark night of the soul, one, I was naive and thought that it was a very short amount of time. And now you're, yes. you're, you're kind of describing it in a much longer yeah. form. But I was like, should the dark night of the soul last for months and years? I, I mean, because that's what it. So let, 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 yeah, let me address that because I, I do know quite a bit about Joseph Campbell. So those of you who don't know Joseph Campbell, so Joseph Campbell is an academic who then reads a lot of mythology mm-hmm. and teases out in a hero, mm-hmm. the hero with a thousand faces, you know, what he calls, you know, sort of the monomyth, like a, sort of a general yep. arc 
But he's doing this essentially in the middle, in the second half of the 20th century, when the world was enthralled with the idea of a linear construct. So I was saying earlier, right, in the ancient world, it's cyclical. In the middle, then the linear idea comes along. Up, down is the, the Middle Ages. But it's not until the birth of science and the rise of science in the 19th century when the idea of linear constructs takes over, right? So you then got Freud with his psychosexual stages. Mm-hmm. You've got Erickson with the eight stages of moral development. You've got Piaget with the children's development. You've got the five stages of grief. Mm-hmm. You've got the hero's journey. All of these in about a two or three decade period mm-hmm. in the middle to late 20th century. The problem is, is those are all linear mm-hmm. and they're dangerous. And they're dangerous. Here's why. And let's just take the five stages of grief. The five stages of grief is that there are five stages. By the way, first of all, the five stages of grief have nothing to do with grief. They were designed by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross with people who were dying, mm. not people who were mourning, Got but it. people who were coming to turn, and it jumped. With their own death. And it was, you know, first, I, I can't even remember them and, and repeating them. I don't want to do the like, damage, the but yeah, first you do this, and, and right, then you yeah, deny right, yeah. and, and, and the reason it's, da- I use the word dangerous, is because you think, well, if I'm doing denial and anger in the wrong right. place, there must be, there must be <laughs> something, something wrong, wrong with, with wrong with me. Yeah. No, there's something wrong with the idea. And the problem with the hero's journey is it says everything has to be in order. First, you got to have the call. Then you got to cross right. the threshold. And right. like the problem is that describes almost no one's journey. I made a six-part TV series for PBS called Sacred Journeys with Bruce Feiler, where I went on six pilgrimages around the world. Even pilgrims don't reflect this model. And that's not even to mention women. Right. So it's a very male centered. Here we go again, back to the masculinity. Right. And the person who invented the idea of a, a midlife crisis was a was a guy named Elliot Jacques. And he didn't research anybody. He just read a bunch of biographies of famous men and concluded that they all had a midlife crisis. And when asked why women didn't D- didn't have a midlife, crisis, didn't yeah. have this. He was like, oh, well, menopause throws the whole thing off. <laughs> OK. If menopause throws the whole thing off, then the whole thing is off. And and you can't tell people that they must fit into one rubric if half of the population is having, you know, a huge involuntary, (laughs) even expected uh, life quake in the middle of their fifth, sixth decade alive, then your model doesn't work. And it's the same thing with the hero's journey. Like it doesn't fit the kind of women because their path is different by and large, which is why there's been like the heroine with a thousand faces and people trying to do the opposite. So what you're saying is that your life is nonlinear and therefore something linear like these things, it doesn't work anymore. That's why we have to embrace the idea of nonlinearity and that there is no schedule that we're not meeting and there, there is no path. And as we turn, we can turn to work now. It's the same thing in work a career, a path. These are all, right, climbing the ladder, right? And these are all linear constructs, and it doesn't relate to how we work. And that's what I've tried to bust through uh, in my latest work. I'm a big fan of your passion. (laughs) Nothing else. I'm a huge fan of your passion, but just that your drive to actually uh, study this, interview people, make discoveries, and then impart the knowledge back so that, like you said, it doesn't necessarily... Uh, change the the length of time, but hopefully it allows people maybe, I'll use the word grace, but just allows them some breathing room in the process, because I think that's a big part of it, right? And even as I was going through some of these, uh, going through the process, 
you know, I knew that I was supposed to be reaching out to people, but when you're in the deal, you don't want to, right? Especially yes. with shame. I'm too ashamed to reach out to people. That's the whole problem, right? And so even in my depression and in my grief, it was like I was ashamed to reach out to others. And I've been through a lot of leadership training, a lot of personal development stuff, meditation, all, all the things. But without having, I think, to your point, I think I was still trying to match them up with some type of linear right? Linear process that I was failing at, right? Like I shouldn't be doing this because I am this old, or I shouldn't be feeling like a failure because I've done all this stuff in business. It's not matching my view of who I am, right? What I'm, my experience of life is not matching what I've told myself who I am. That makes sense. The single most quoted line back to me in recent years is the following. And it gets to the heart of what you're talking about here which is that we have linear expectations and we have nonlinear lives. Right. And the problem is, is that we look at our life and we are dissatisfied or we think we're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm unhappy in my relationship. You know, the religious institution that I grew up in is no longer meeting my needs. I've lost a parent and I'm grieving. I have a child who's not living up to my expectation of what my child was going to be. Okay. I'm unhappy in my work. I'm dissatisfied. I, I studied one thing in college and 10 years later, I want to do something else. So that's an expectation that we had that life was going to be linear. But in fact, as we're living it, we find that it's nonlinear. And the core thing, if I could almost like do one thing in this mm -hmm. conversation, it would be to stop putting the blame on yourself mm -hmm. for your feelings and pivot that blame to the expectations. Where did we get the idea? Right. That life is going to follow a set path. Well, part of it is the undergraduate textbooks, which tell us <laughs> that you can only have a life crisis on birthdays that end in zero. Let's just take right. the pandemic. Right. The very simple thing. If you were between 39 and 44 and a half, you know, you were in a midlife crisis. But if you were between 52 and 63 and a quarter, you were also in a crisis. Or if you were like my teenagers were 14 and a half. And 24, you're also in a life crisis. These, it's the whenever life crisis. It's not the midlife crisis, okay? And the same thing with work, okay? You know, for most of human history, there was no idea of a career. So what is the search? The search is, I did another round of interviews focused on work, okay? Mm -hmm. Trying to figure out what can we learn. And, and my book is based around what I call the three lies and one truth about work. So lie number one is that you have a career. For most of human history, there was no such word for a career. You didn't need it. 90% of people lived where they worked and worked where they lived and you did everything. You tended the fields, you made candles, you were cared for your sick relatives, you educated your children. Like there was no word for a career. There was no word for a job, okay? It wasn't until the industrial revolution that the idea of a job and a career, where, where did this idea of a career come from? People, <laughs> I was on TV recently and on the business channels and they said, can you believe, Mr. Filer, can you believe that 3,500 people lost their job last month because of AI? This is a totally destabilizing event. My response was, do you know how many people lost their job in the agricultural revolution? A third of the country. <laughs> right. And they didn't just lose their job when they were plows and things like that. They moved to cities right. where they didn't know anybody because there was a bunch of new jobs. And so a guy named Frank Parsons, the story is in the search if you care, invents the idea of a career in 1908. And suddenly everyone's convinced they got to have a career. Some, a word that, <laughs> and concept that never existed. Okay. Right. 
And he said you could only do it once, only if you were a male. And if you changed jobs, there was something wrong with you and you needed to be institutionalized. I mean, that was the idea. Wow. Mm -hmm. So 50 years later, they invent a new idea, and that is the resume. And we think that the, there was no resumes before 1950 because nobody needed them. Right. <laughs> and so what does the resume do? It fetishizes the idea that each job is supposed to be a linear progression. Everyone's supposed to be more responsibilities and more money. That's a ridiculous burden. Think of all, I mean, I'm in my 50s. Think of all the women who were told, if you get off the escalator, you'll never get back on. If you have to, if you want to spend time with your children, right? Or you want to start right. a nonprofit yeah. and it fails, or you want to go into public service, or you want to join the military. Nothing has squandered more human potential than this idea that if you get off the escalator, you can never get back on. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Get back on, right? And guess what? It was the pandemic. When everybody was in a life quake, mm -hmm. what happened? There was no longer a stigma against quitting your job. And as a result, 50 million Americans quit a job in right. the last year. That's a third of the workforce. And another third said, screw it. I don't want to commute four hours a day from the suburbs to the city. Like, I'll go to the office, but only three days a week. But it's all part of the same process of breaking away from this linear prison that we've been in and mm -hmm. giving ourselves the freedom to live nonlinear lives. And the key to living a nonlinear life is to ask yourself, what is it that gives me meaning today? Mm -hmm. Not six months ago, not what my parents want, not what my religious institution wants, not what my culture, what, what I want today. And right now it may be making money, but it also might be giving back. It also might be, you know, service or whatever it is. So the key is, and that's why the search includes what I call a, a meaning audit, like 21 questions mm -hmm. to find work you love, a series of questions to ask yourself to figure out what is most meaningful to me right now. It brings us back to exactly where we started. The yeah. reason I use the word life quake mm -hmm. and the reason I use the word work quake is because they're value neutral. Most of the time that we talk about these events, we say it's a crisis, it's a catastrophe, right. yep, yep, yep. whatever. And that does not capture people's lived experience because people's lived experience isn't even the most crisis, chaotic, depressing, awful times in our lives often lead to a sense of growth and renewal and, and recreation. Mm -hmm. Accommodate the grief or the sadness or the fear of the shame and still manage to find meaning through it, okay? And even things that are joyful. I mean, I, I'm the parent, as I mentioned earlier, of identical twin daughters. Trust me, their birth was a life quake. I mean, it was joyful. But, every, <laughs> you know, my work life, my wife's work, like yeah, everything yeah. to be. So there were different. Right? Exactly. There were difficult parts of it, too. So by looking at these as neutral events opens up the possibility that even in the bad, we mm -hmm. can find it. And even in the good, there can be difficult parts of it. Because ultimately, and this gets back to what I ask you, where's the agency? The agency lies with us. And I think the stories that you've told me is that what you've learned, and by the way, I, I don't even know that much about you, but I know that this life quake that you went into also seems to have led into a work quake, which has led you mm -hmm. to do, oh, totally. right? Which is engaging with people, mm -hmm. building community, yeah. having conversations about raw, right. real, vulnerable things, mm -hmm. because that can work, right? You burst mm -hmm. through the shame, mm -hmm. you burst through the gendered wall that said men aren't supposed to talk about this and have a conversation like two men of our age are having mm -hmm. right now. That's a work quake, but it's all the same thing. It says, 
in the story of my life, I don't want to run away from what happened to me. I don't want to, right. I'm ashamed, lock it in the closet, okay? Bury it, sweep it under the rug. I want to have the difficult conversation. When you were in the hospital with your appendix, or maybe this doesn't exactly sync, I was at Thanksgiving dinner where we, my sister plays this corny game that I always roll my eyes up. It always works, which is what are you grateful for, right? Right, yeah, of course, yes. And she puts me last, even mm -hmm. though it's her game. And I said this time I was thankful for three things. I was thankful for technology, which in the group chat with my children are off in college now, we can keep vaguely in mm -hmm. touch. Like mm -hmm. that was the beep that we heard a few minutes oh. ago. I was thankful for the calls that didn't come in the mm -hmm. last year. Mm -hmm. We had expected some calls about medical problems or that, that didn't come. And the last thing, I mean, this is Thanksgiving. You're supposed to be, I love my family, you know, and I love the puppy and I love the cranberry <laughs> sauce, you know, and I love butterflies and flowers. I ended this where 11 people went around and I said, I'm thankful for difficult conversations mm -hmm. because that's what helps us get through is the willingness to be vulnerable, mm -hmm. the willingness to ask for help, the willingness to say, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm lost in the woods. Like, you know what? We want to banish the wolves <laughs> in the fairy tale. We want to banish the ogre under the bridge. We want to banish the scariness in, in the woods. But you can't banish the wolf because if you do, you banish the hero. And if there's one thing I learned, it's that we all need to be the hero of our own story. And that's someone who gets through the woods, past the wolf, over the bridge, and writes her own story and does so in a way that keeps us moving forward. I love it. There were so many mic drop moments. I'm just going to let that be a mic drop moment right there, Bruce. How do people best follow your work? Because it sounds like it's ever evolving. So you've yes. got the book, these last two books, which are focused yeah. on what we've just talked about, which is amazing. You've got the Council of Dads um, out there about your previous journey. But how do people follow the ever-evolving story? Or is there a way? Um, there's a way. I mean, I'm Bruce Feiler, which is F-E-I-L-E-R. I'm on pretty much all social channels at Bruce Feiler, whether that's Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn or everything else. So I'm at Bruce Feiler. I do write a weekly newsletter. I'm going to write one tonight. Maybe I'll allude to this conversation called The Nonlinear Life, which is at brucefeiler.substack.com. If you go to brucefeiler.com, you can see all of these books are mentioned there and linked. I have three TED Talks. I travel around the country speaking on these themes, and I love nothing more than hearing people and the chance to share this story. And I'm grateful that you invited me, and I hope that we can keep the conversation going. I love it. I love it. And yes, please, anytime you want to have a conversation, I'd love to have you come on. I think other others can connect to it because it is our life. And I think it's just a breath of fresh air that you're breathing into this conversation. And I'm sure every conversation you're having, but a breath of fresh air to know one, I'm not alone. We're not alone. We're in this thing called life together. It's actually good to reach out. It's good to connect. It's good to be human <laughs> and allow ourselves to be human, right? I think that's a big part of it is just allowing ourselves the humanity yes. of the thing. Yes. So I, I think your message is extremely timely. And if there's anything I can do here at the Bright Vibe podcast to help uh, disseminate your message, I would be honored and it, it would help fulfill my want to serve others. So certainly, yes, if you'd like to come back on and talk about any of these subjects, again, love to, whether we talk about, you know, masculinity, femininity, different roles, whatever you want to talk about, you're always welcome to come back on because I've so enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for having me. And uh, we can get through this, everybody, if we stick together. 
I love it. Thank you so much, Bruce. Thank you for being a part of the Bright Vibe podcast. For more information, go to brightvibe.com. That's B-R-I-T-E vibe, B-I-B-E dot com. Thank you for listening. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.